Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Two on rhetoric with our guest on rhetoric on language and its use and all that good stuff and um, so we left off having this discussion or at least thinking about these preliminary questions concerning the function of language so you want to think about what does language do uh, and if we're confining that to the public sphere i.e. to other people not just oneself it seems like one place to start, even if it's not entirely correct, is to think about the idea of language either transmitting an idea or granting someone access to an idea that they didn't have prior to the speech act or something. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is complicated. I remember uh, learning, again, as probably an undergrad about the conduit metaphor, uh, and it was always like so quickly shot down, right? So the conduit metaphor would say that words and sentences are containers and we take our thoughts, we put them in the container, we ship it off to the other person, they open it and they see our thought. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's pretty quickly dismissed, I, I guess, in, in a contemporary scholarship. Which is weird, I think. Um, intuitively, yeah, it seems weird because that's, I think, typically how we think of language, right? Well, I told you what I meant. I told you what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, uh, obviously, it's not so neat a process because of that same thing I just said, because things you think you were explicit and the person gets something totally different from what you said. Um, and obviously, if they don't know what a word means or they there's multiple definitions of a word, uh, there's clearly elements that get lost. But Generally, is that kind of what language does? I don't know. So I'm thinking in the 50s um, and for, well, uh, the first half of the 20th century, uh, that was the, the, the permanent explanation, right? This idea of the, the, the telephone kind of uh, mm -hmm. format of, of communication slash language, right? And then uh, cybernetics comes to play and say, well, it's not that easy. Uh, in fact, there are elements that we need to add to it. And the first thing that we add to it, that they add to it, is this idea of noise, obviously, right? And the fact that you lose some of the message, so to speak, which is part of what you were saying, like the fact that we're missing then, that we're misunderstanding. And even more importantly, they add this idea of feedback, right? That whenever you're talking, this thing keeps on feeling it on itself, right? That this idea that you always, you're always... Um, the sender, so to speak, is always influenced by the receiver and vice versa, and things get more and more complex from there. Uh, and all that, all that sounds right. Because um, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is, like, to try and play devil's advocate, um, the fact that sometimes there's these communication breakdowns, I wonder if that proves that there's no conduit or it just proves that 
there can be bad conduits. And the larger point to make is that the fact that things aren't as simple, again, might not mean that the conduit metaphor is wrong. It just might mean we have to make our idea of what the conduit is and what it does more complex. Well, I think that, to say the least, the conduit metaphor is grossly incomplete, right? Because otherwise we're equating, again, language with, with communication, and we said that that's not the case. Did well, you? we said that it, it wasn't mere communication. I don't think that we said it wasn't a mode of communication, right? Mm. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm thinking when you when you send somebody a message, right, when you're speaking or writing to somebody... Um, the meaning that both of you get from it is a negotiation, right? So, uh, yeah. yes, you're communicate. You want them to get the message that you're sending, but you're also figuring out what that message even is as you're forced to put it into words. Yes. Um, and, and you'll, and you only can kind of test the usefulness or the accuracy of it based on how the other person received it and what, like you said, the feedback that you're getting from them. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's something that troubles this conduit metaphor because it's, it doesn't seem to be an arrow in one direction. Yeah. Right. So I'm thinking in the same way that you could say subjects and objects both exist. They just don't exist in isolation. It's a relation. Mm -hmm. Can't you say, Oh yeah, there's this conduit between people. It's just not a one-way thing. Because, like, if I'm having a conversation with one of you guys, um, and, you know, let's use the metaphor really directly here. It's like I'm putting my idea in a, in a box. And ideally, it would be in a very clear box so you can see exactly what's inside. Now, if I, in, in that communicative act, do something that isn't ideal, what you receive is like a distorted version of, of my idea. Because instead of getting the idea in a clear box, you're getting it in like a dirty box where you can't see in the inside. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's no conduit. It just means that that was a bad conduit. And that doesn't mean that feedback doesn't exist. It just means we might have to take it into account. So I'm, I guess what I'm trying to do is like figure out if there's any necessary reason why we have to let go of it versus just trying to make it better so to speak. I don't know. The, you're talking about the metaphor in general, right? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, again, I keep saying that in the main issue, and I, it's in my opinion, is the fact that we are kind of flattening language to that whenever we say that. What well, gets lost? I think there's so many more things that we do with our language that's just not this... Oh, exchange, so to speak, this mm. this shipment of ideas somewhere else. And again, not uh, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I was thinking during during the little break in between episodes, you mentioned Austin, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, so JL Austin talks about uh, speech acts, right? Language that doesn't communicate an idea that you're shipping to somebody else, but uh, moments where when you say the thing, you're actually doing something. So exactly. some obvious examples he gives is like at a wedding when you say I do um, or mm. even like in a courtroom if you say I object or something yes. uh, it's not that there's some like definitional content that you're sending to somebody you're mm -hmm. you're you're performing an action when you 
do the thing. So that's exactly. maybe maybe uh, an example of something that language does that's not clearly uh, packaging up a meaning to give to somebody. Exactly. That's a, yeah, that's a good point because another thing that uh, Pinker was talking about, he, he criticized the conduit metaphor in kind of the same way uh, you're talking about, but his example was he kind of equated it with the the Paulo Ferreira banking model of education, how like the teacher doesn't just give something to the student. And mm -hmm. so he says in the same way, language doesn't do that. Mm. And, you know, regardless of whether it's totally correct to, to draw a connection there, I'm wondering what you guys think. Do we think that this issue gets res could get resolved at least somewhat if we stop saying we're giving someone the idea with language and instead say we're allowing them to access an idea because that seems more like a shared activity right i he thinks no no <laughs> no i think that the way in which you get rid of the the bad metaphor is by saying that through language an idea is being created together yeah. doesn't come from you together that's what i used the word negotiated before <laughs> yeah, right which i stole from linda flower one of my <laughs> grad school <laughs> professors at carnegie mellon but yeah, she has uh, a lot of work on negotiated meaning. Exactly. And I think of this in the context of my teaching a lot. Like when I design um, an essay question, I have something in mind until I see what the students actually produced in response to that. Right. And suddenly you have to acknowledge that there was so much going on and there's all these voices in their heads from past English classes, from yes. whatever else is going on in their life, from something I said in class once that they're thinking of out of context. Yes. And I, um, I, I agree yeah. with you so much that I always tell my students that the first essay that they write for me, like this is to know each other. So you know what to expect from me and I know what to expect from you. And mm -hmm. then if it goes terribly bad, I had to recalibrate stuff. Um, usually we try to get on the same page before that uh, by some mock sort of examinations. But still, that's tr for the longest time I refused to have a complete uh, syllabus uh, for the simple reason that depending on the class, your syllabus is going to be different. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, that was my approach. And then, of course, the, the administration and the administrators crushed my soul. And now I have a super detailed syllabus for everything that we got to do. Um, but going back to, to what we were saying before, um, I think that just like Claire was saying, language does many more things. Austin is one of these examples, like this performative act, which he talks about. But there's also the fact some sometimes we just describe stuff, right? Sometimes we just have other people do things. Open the mm. door, right? What kind of... I'm not conveying any meaning, really. I'm not conveying any idea. I have, I'm using language to have someone do something. Uh, I know what you think you're saying, well, but I have the idea that I want the door closed. But at the end of the day, the function of the language is to have somebody to get up and do something. It's not True. to mm -hmm. convey an idea. So I think that, and like, it, so what I'm thinking now is it, it it's not mutually exclusive. Like, can't you have functional or performative aspects without getting rid of the semantic what do you mean? Aspect. So like when you say close the door, mm -hmm. if you were to say, oh, all you're doing is like transferring an idea in abstraction, maybe that's wrong because there's a context. So you say, oh, no, no, all you're doing is 
performing an act and it has nothing to do with ideas. And I think that sounds wrong too because they have to have an idea of what you mean in order for them to perform the act. So I'm wondering if like you could just combine these two. I, I'm thinking though, when you say close the door and somebody closes it, it's almost like when you tell the dog sit and he sits. It like goes back to being the input thing, kind of, hmm. maybe, right? At least with certain like stand, literally you could, you could tell a person to sit, right? And they sit. Um, which is not the same as as describing your thought. Yeah. Exactly. Think of the I mean, mo- think of the mode of the verb, right? Mm-hmm. I always think of it from a grammar standpoint. And it, I, again, I don't know the technical the technicality for the English language, but in Italian we have different modes on the verb of the verb. One is it's called indicative, which is the one that you use to describe stuff, and then there is the imperative mode, which is the one that w- which we're talking about right now, right? Where you tell people what to do and the verb is structured in a different way it's conjugated differently right Mm -hmm. and this tells you that this describes different aspect of language probably at least this is the way i i i see it and i really think that the fact that you use an exclamation point after close the door right tells you that you're doing something different and describing your thoughts i'm i'm wondering like so are certain things more language than others like are certain question you know what i mean like are we being more human and more linguistic when we are trying to explain to each other what we're thinking versus when we say get up move or whatever and because those commands if they do a thing that's different from the quote-unquote more linguistic linguistic acts they only work because it's like uh, reducing humans to a kind of computer or behavioristic thing. Well, yeah, well, I think we can, yes. I, and in this scale, I think the speech acts, the performative acts, which Austin is talking, they're the max level of creativity and being human, right? In that mm-hmm. case. Because you're literally doing something, right? Maybe, you're yeah. You're creating. It, seem, it seems like, uh, yeah, there's like more levels of abstraction, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like there's more metaphors in place that allow those speech acts to work uh yeah and i think that you know if we're saying that in the case of close the door we are in the level of the input and output right then when we are communicating when we're talking with each other there is this creation of meaning the negotiation which you're talking about and then with the speech act there is actually the creation of something almost empirical right in order for you guys to get married, you need somebody to make you married, right? And it's, uh, I mean, I'm hoping I'm not breaking any news to you, but <laughs> nothing is going to ch- technically change, but the wars are being, they're going to be huddled by somebody, right? The fact that somebody is going to say that now you're man and wife, right? That will have consequences for your taxes. That will have consequences for your life. They will have consequences for everything. You are literally creating a new entity that didn't exist before. So on that level, I think that the maximum level of creativity comes from the speech acts. Hmm. Or maybe I'm crazy. That's also possible. But I, <laughs> I do believe that that's... That that's yeah, no, that all makes perfect sense. Uh, it's one of those things where I'm listening, you know, kind of passively like, okay, so Claire's saying this, should they be saying this? And I, I think I agree with all of it, maybe the thing that I'm, I'm just getting tripped up on is 
what conclusion these premises point at or that like all these premises have to fit into a structure this one specific way because i'm thinking like if we're willing to say there's a distinction between um quote-unquote lower level language that is less semantical and like less eidetic um and more just deterministic input output and then there's the higher level language that is more eidetic and semantic then can't we just say that the conduit doesn't it's not that it never works it just doesn't work for all why do you like this conduit thing so much what's why do you hate it so much (laughs) so i think maybe another another issue with the conduit that i'm thinking of now and i haven't read about this in years so correct me if i'm wrong but Maybe you're not putting the words in the box. Maybe it doesn't say the words themselves are the boxes that hold the meaning. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, um, I guess pointing back to like death of the author, part of the reason that was presented to me as like a relevant critique is, is to say there's no meaning in these little squiggles and symbols. Of course. Yeah, of course. Um, so these words can't be boxes that hold meaning. Meaning is something that's, actively created and negotiated between people constructed um, so so maybe that's maybe that's why well I, that makes sense the metaphor like obviously gets... the squiggles don't have meaning absent of people right like it's not like all oh, the language is floating outside of the the subjects and it's certainly not the case that the language is the meaning because that that's problematic because the, if language was meaning, then something like miscommunication by definition couldn't occur, right? But I don't, I don't know if it's less about the language being the meaning rather than being an attempt at sharing meaning. Uh, once more, I think that the, re- the reason why we are stuck in this is the fact that you're thinking of language as this one-directional thing with all the feedbacks, right? But you're thinking it comes from here, from my head, it gets out... He gets all the noises that you, the, of course, we all agreeing that's there. He gets distorted, whatever it is. And then eventually when he reaches the, the receiver, he comes back to me a little bit modified. And then there's this loop, right, going on. You're accepting that. The point is the critique of this model is the fact that there is no one direction. It's like you're meeting in the middle. Oh, sure. I agree. The origin point isn't that clean because another thing we haven't talked about yet is that like the reason that any of us can use language in the first place, and this goes back to an earlier point, is because we're historically affected in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And Gadamer has this, this really long German word for historically affected consciousness. I can't say it right now. Um, but he talks about how language is, is just tradition. It's like the passing of down of tradition. So no, it's never this origin point pointing out. It's like it's always in flux. Mm-hmm. And this is closely related to his idea, which maybe we could talk about this now, is that there's no such thing as a word, right? Like there's no such thing as one word. Mm-hmm. Words only make sense in relation to other words and in fact in relation to the whole system. So there's this kind of like gestalt element to language. It is gestalt not only in the moment, but historically as well, which complicates things. It's like the, the link of a chain, right? so to speak maybe I don't know. yeah i maybe this this feels related but i was even thinking before um like there's so many so many phrases 
that we just all borrow and say the same thing. So even like if you're in a relationship and it's like, have, have you said I love you yet? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not like there's no individual meaning. Well, every every instance of love does have individual whatever uniquenesses. Um, but somehow we're all using that same exact phrase. And it's only when you say that phrase uh, that you're like tapping into a shared thing, but also probably expressing something that is unique. But that unique meaning isn't in those words. Um, so kind of like sure. every so to bring it back, like every couple that's saying that has the same box that they're sending back and forth. But what what that box indicates, right, um, is hmm. contextual and and constructed between those people. Yeah, because I wonder now if this is related to the issue of like universals versus particulars in that meaning. Like, would you say meaning is always particular to the extent that it's always contextual? I was I was thinking, um, uh, listening to Claire, I was thinking of again. The metaphor that comes to me is still uh, generation, right? It's still genetics, right? Uh, while those words, the way we use it, those sentences, they have a, a sort of the genetic code of the way we use it. All of us use it, right? They're in this pool, mm-hmm. and then there are the specifics of of the way you use it in your relationship and the way I use it in my relationship, right? There's these two things that conflate the to Again, we we're talking about Aristotle before. There's the business, right? Mm-hmm. Of this, the specificity of your way of using the word "I love you," and then there is also the all the baggage, the historical aspect that comes with it. And mm-hmm. there's the mix of these two things that make language so amazing, right? To this idea that you are always tapping into a universal sort of 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 uh, container, right? Mm. But then you can use it, and you can partially distorted the way you want it but you need both right like the one has to be embodied in the other you can't just like abstract universal absent of a particular right nor can you have the particular that's not in some way related to the universal these things seem to have to coexist in some sense mm, i'm not i'm not sure claire would you i'm not um so your your question is about uh can you use a universal without having a particular meaning or vice versa, something like that. Sure, which is ultimately like a Plato versus Aristotle question. And I was actually thinking that you were going to say, yes, there needs to be the particular because you're usually the, the slightly more Aristotelian one, I think. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I am a little bit conflicted about this because I, I can think of instances when you are inventing a new way of saying, or you're using a new word for the first time, you're not mm-hmm. tapping into anything, right? You're using an expression. I do this, uh, my, uh, you know, my kids make fun of me and uh, for because I make up stuff for them, right? And I make up names or sentences that don't make any sense, but then I, I fit them in a way that they end up making sense in this uh, in this group, right? I mean, oh yeah, and all the time, <laughs> all the time. Uh, literally, words that don't exist, right? Um, so, and that would be the case in which you're using the particular without, on a certain level, the universal. Oh, interesting. But Maybe. not with not without the universal, right? It's, because yeah, I mean, yeah, you're yeah. still you're still, part some, of, you're still within the system, right? There's something that makes it intelligible to your kids, even if it yeah, takes yeah. them a second or whatever. And I wonder though if it's possible to use things in a very general way, 
without getting giving them any hue, any specific color. So one one thing one thing I was thinking of, um, like I always when you learn about Emily Dickinson, she apparently just like stayed in her house her whole life, her life and you know clean you know did laundry and dishes, but she would look out on funerals happening across the street. Um, and she went to write all this poetry about love and life and loss and all this like depth mm-hmm. um, that it would almost seem like she was operating on a level of universals because if you're mm. if you don't have maybe this isn't the same but if you don't have like the the particulars of these experiences that you're bringing to it um, and you could extend this to any any like you know kid that writes a story about a romance or something. Well, They're like pulling from these these cultural ideas. There has to be the referent, not of, yeah. not their particular experiences of these things. I was thinking of all the millions of rom coms that are out there, right? They're all this. Okay, here comes the Your letter. Favorite. Yeah, the the rom com. They're all the same, right? Plot is the same. The universal aspect is there. Instead of Jim, you have John. Uh, you know, guy loses girl, guy meets girl, you know, then guy loses girl, then guy gets girl back, right? This is, mm-hmm. yeah. and this is absolutely universal. And while the imagery could be by li- might be a little bit different, the language that they're tapping into, it's absolutely the same. Is that what we're saying? That that's the universe that's, or when we use cliches, for example, right? Or does the mm-hmm. universal without any sort of you, without any yeah. sort of specific color? Yeah, I think uh, like before we were talking about how sometimes you use universal, like you say, I love you and it means something unique to the couple. Um, But maybe just as often, if not more often, the opposite is happening where Hmm. um, that universal is coloring your experience in the first place. So like when you do get into a relationship, you can't stop that rom-com plot (laughs) from playing out in your head. Um, and waiting for the line where he says, I love you and waiting for, uh, so, so we were kind of focusing on, on the unique bits that you're bringing to it, but maybe it's even more so reverse, right? The, that we are mapping our experiences and figuring, right? Making sense of our experiences using these universal bits of language. Yeah. So I think there can be, um, like an argument to be had about whether, we use the particular to understand the universal or whether we use the universal to understand the particular. But I think the, the thing that we're all agreeing upon is that, and I think this is safe to say and not controversial, that both are needed in some respect, right? There's no, there's no individuated abstract notion of either because it's like there's this almost kind of like hermeneutic circle, if you want to say, where one refers to the other, refers to the other, refers to the other, right? I, I'm going to go Aristotle route here. I think it's possible to think of them separately. Yes. But in practice, they're never given separately. Yeah, I agree. And similarly, Husserl will say, like, you could distinguish between the act of consciousness and the object of consciousness, but they don't af- ever happen separately. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because, that, that seems right. Because I think you can think of this general container where all the meaning is and all the words are. And in theory, you can think of them separate from anybody saying any of these things, right? Uh, and that you can think of that never happens, right? You mm-hmm. always need somebody to use them. Otherwise, they you know, they don't exist anymore themselves. But I think it's possible to say that. I was wondering while we were talking about this, uh, you know, when somebody says that you're using empty words, right? 
Mm, what yeah. do we mean by that? That we mean that we're using just a very general and generic version of it without putting inputting into there something of our own? Or is that something different? That's what I thought. The first thing I thought of was someone saying, I love you, but not meaning it. No, like someone I, saying, no, I love you. And then the other person's like, those are just empty words because you don't do anything to show me that you love me. And I was thinking of something different. I was thinking of, you know, hey, how are you? And then you keep on walking. Oh, right? how you doing? Good. Yeah. But you yeah. don't, you're not actually good. You just say that. Well, yeah. but I think that this is, I was thinking of this earlier when we were talking about um, different functions of language, because even if, even if there's not some depth to the literal meaning of how are you? I'm good. How are you? Um, it still performs. It still communicates something, right? Mm. Those, those words aren't important, but I was even, as you guys are talking, I keep like, Hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> like even these little things, um, yeah, they're, the they're like important bits of communication and it's not denotative. It's not like in the definition of, Hmm. Um, but it's in, you know, I'm listening. Yeah, I got you. I'm following are, what you're saying. And I feel like a rhetorical event. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I feel like, hi, how you doing? Or I'm so sorry for your loss or whatever. These kinds of things, even if there's a level of like emptiness or cliche to them, they still perform these important bits of communication to the person that you're saying it to. I guess what, what I was saying is, are this, when we say these things, and I'm not thinking of non-meaning stuff, right? I, you mean it when you say, I'm sorry for your loss, right? Or you're kind of engaging in this communication aspect of which we're talking about, this performative uh, social uh, act that, you are, that you're part of when you say, are you doing good, uh, and so on. I'm, I'm asking, I think what I was asking was, are this the most basic and general way to use the words that we have we're not we're not invested into this so much we're just it's an act so to speak not act in the in the in the bad way saying that we are putting up an act and re in reality we don't mean this thing but really it's just what one does yes yeah is that that does that mean that this is the the most general way in which we can use stuff in a in a way it almost seems to be like the least linguistic like it's yeah. Like saying, hey, how you doing? Is like you could have just smiled and waved. Like you almost didn't need the language to mm -hmm. convey that social moment. Yeah. Um, so before when we were talking, are some things more language than other language? Uh, it seems like maybe these are cases where it's less. And it, it seems related to the fact that when you give these uh, responses or shoot these question sounding noises impulsively, <laughs> There's like no actual thought happening. Oh, hey, how you doing? Good. Like you don't actually think I am doing good. Let me reflect upon it. Right. You just make noise because it does something. Um, so it has meaning because like you're right. saying, Claire, it has a function. And like, I understand what you mean by that. And you did it for a specific reason, even if it was like kind of pre-reflective, whatever you want to say. So it's not meaningless. It does perform something. And, and it does seem, though, that the less language ones, you're going to hate me for saying this, are the ones that are less related to thinking. Maybe. Yeah. And it seems related to authenticity to me too. Cause when you were saying like, Oh, I just say this just to say that, that sounded very much like Heidegger who we haven't talked about yeah. extensively, but this idea of the they, right. Mm -hmm. Das man, like it's just what one does. You just, at those moments you do relinquish any kind of, 
authentic self and just function as like a little piece in the machine because you don't have that, uh, that same goal in mind, I guess. I'm wondering, we keep on talking about things that have more or less language in them, so to speak, right? And I guess that the question, uh, the next question for me is, okay, is there anything that has no language in it? Because it seems to me that every human activity, the fact that we are human, there's always a certain level of, how can we call it, linguisticity there, languageness involved. It's impossible not to be using language. Nothing that's rational, to go back to what you said, right? Mm. But you would allow um, those pre-reflective experiences as an example, right, of, of non-linguistic. I'm, I'm thinking more on the, you know, towards the external aspect of it. I'm, I'm right, right now, I, I want to erase what's inside for a moment. And I'm thinking, you know, is there any action that we perform that is not linguistic? Absolutely no, no linguistic. One thing that came to mind is like something that happens uh, in, like impulsively, instinctually. That's exactly what I was thinking. Mm. Like a like a quick like a fight or flight response kind of thing or something. Mm. Um, Someone throws a hand at you, you like put your hands up, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a pre linguistic because it's pre reflective. Mm. So maybe only this kind of stuff, right? Maybe, yeah. I was also thinking like the you know the baby cries, the mom's like body jerks to like see what's going on so like to that use seems to be the uh, aristotelian language it seems like the 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 nutritive and sensory human acts uh are the ones that don't involve language but once you move into the rational but, uh, uh, aspect that's where it comes into play okay i'm gonna i'm gonna play the the devil's advocate here all right but i think that there is a it, it all even these things that you guys are describing right it depends the way you kind of cut the world right because if we're talking about uh for example the person that reacts in a specific way maybe that's not linguistic but then if you look at from the perspective of an observer that is a very linguistic act it's telling me something right if i'm looking at you making this movement immediately you're telling me something that you got scared that you got preoccupied that you got hurt and isn't this an, a linguistic interaction between your body and me? So because the person who threw the punch or whatever, because they can interpret the reaction linguistically, it makes it a linguistic interaction? Is That's, that the... I guess, what I'm asking. Or even okay. third party. Even like, some... so, okay, oh, right, so right. we're witnessing so... a fight happen. Someone throws a punch. The other person, without thinking, just kind of like puts their hands up. Are you saying that the third person walking by is that instinctual putting your hands up a linguistic act, even though it wasn't intended to be that way from the person doing it? I, yeah, I think that's reasonable to believe that that is, again, if we say that there is a level on which language is communicating, again, even the minimal level that we said, which is conveying a message, right? Uh, or to say better to uh, just the input of which we're talking about, right? that we still call a language, but on a minimal level, that is giving me that input, right? That is me, the observer. I understand what's happening there once more because I see that movement. That movement is containing language. It's not written, it's not oral, but it is still language, isn't it? So, well, one thing I'm thinking, 
one of the first things that we established in the previous episode was like, well, language is a human thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the dog flinches if you raise a hand to the dog, right? Mm. And that gives me a message that the dog is scared. Oh, maybe he's been hit before, right? We like interpret what's going on. Um, but but if the, it's not linguistic from the dog's end, right? Even yeah. if we can, even if we can make sense. So yeah, would, does that still count? Would that still fit like this linguistic oh, interaction? I was about way? to say, I think that the, that the metaphor there should be, if a dog sees that, does the dog knows that the dog is flinching because it's scared? Because if the dog has no idea, then that's fine because we are inputting the linguistic aspect onto the dog. So what's the difference, though, between a dog and, like, a baby? So, like, when a baby is crying, and mm-hmm. I mean baby baby, not, like, a toddler. When the baby is crying for whatever reason, mm-hmm. we experience that empirical event, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe we make sense of it. And I, I think I, I'm agreeing with what Claire is saying, is, like, we linguize, make sense of, rationalize, whatever you want to call it, something that wasn't so previously in order but wasn't to, so though? Well, because the baby clearly wasn't like using but reason he, to cry. But isn't he say something to baby? And I think you're hearing things. I don't think they're mm. saying things. I'm also thinking like you you can interpret what's going on linguistically, but you might not be right. Oh, um, oh, so I and guess, so okay, yes, and so. I don't know. That's got to complicated in some way. Like if, if there well, wasn't that, that, that wasn't the message they were sending. If there was a message being sent. I guess that what I'm trying to reinforce here is this idea that language is the only way that we have to make sense of things once more. Right. And that even those things that we call non-linguistic or pre-linguistic, like the flinching and all this kind of stuff at the end of the day, we are able to, to, to make sense of it because we're able to talk about it and interpret it as messaging as language right and without this filter that will be impossible for us even to make sense of that situation so every every single thing is a linguistic event wait but i think there's a move there being made (laughs) i think you're making a move between saying we can only make sense of the thing linguistically Mm -hmm. and then saying the thing itself is linguistic no well is there even again then Mm, we go into a a different That, no, absolutely. But then we get into this, this. Then we have to say, well, is there any such thing as the thing itself behind behind the veil behind of the language? Of behind the language, we don't know that. We cannot access that. All I can access is the fact that I can make sense of things only through language. And if that's the case, hmm. in the human universe, everything is linguistic. That's yes. all I was trying to say. Yeah, that that makes sense. That's I think that's like a Kantian perspective applied to language, kind of, right? It's like space, time, and language. Hmm. I don't know. I'm like I'm like ninety percent there. <laughs> he doesn't want to commit to this. He I don't. I I think I still see a distinction too, um, mm. because once we again to make sense of it, yes, necessarily linguistic. Once you reflect on it, necessarily linguistic. But the thing in the moment that it happens, and again, to keep turning to animals just because we agreed early on that they don't mm-hmm. have language, um, you know, the, the one animal flinches at the other and it communicates weakness or he bares his teeth and it communicates aggression. Mm. Um, and maybe, you know, not maybe, they don't have those words to, to mm-hmm. label those things, but there's still messages and communication and understanding. Still a thing, right? Or even plants, right? Like the plant 
turns towards the sun and that's mm-hmm. a thing mm-hmm. and it seems like that's a thing independent of like my teleologizing I don't know whatever like making mm-hmm. sense of it through my language then maybe we can say that I don't know that everything is communication in in human terms but only that the language aspect is smaller the set that no. we call language is smaller than the set that we call communication, even for us. Oh, that one, yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. That one, definitely. So we cannot not communicating, be communicating. We're always communicating something, but we're not always using language. And I think a, a better way of saying it that will be less controversial is not we are always communicating, but rather communication is always happening. Yeah, yeah. Right, because that way you better. remove the, the subject yeah. intending from it. Yeah, better than that. Okay, better. well, I think... That's a, a good place to stop for now, right? Maybe yeah. we can come back to this again one day. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, cool. Claire, <laughs> you are invited for whatever future episode. It'll be All good. Right. We'll, we'll do one on, uh, like we said, rhetoric and philosophy, maybe specifically. Right. I'll get yeah. my boxing gloves ready for that one. <laughs> we'll have to sit on opposite sides. <laughs> Hopefully we'll do this, you know. Uh, looking at each other in the same room one of those days. That's right. Maybe we'll Amen. breathe the same air at some point. Yeah, uh, we can. We, uh, eventually, we'll wear masks. <laughs> All right. Oh boy. All right. We'll see you guys around. Thank right. you. Later. Bye bye.